This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Rheumatoid Solutions Podcast with Clint Patterson, helping you to live an easier, healthier, and happier life. This is going to be a fabulous and interesting interview. Uh, I have an author today of a book called Let It Flow. I bought this book about a month ago and was fascinated by its content because I believe that our body's inability to heal with rheumatoid arthritis, and for that matter, a lot of chronic disease, is the lack of blood flow and oxygen to our cells. And I've become much more enlightened about this topic after reading this book by Dr. Kwan. It is a fascinating read, and today I'm blessed because he's joining us on this podcast episode. Dr. Kwan, thank you so much for coming and joining me today. Uh, thank you very much. I'm so glad to be here to talk about this issue. You know, this is, I believe that to see these issues of blood flow affects just about everyone that we know, you know, in, in, in different forms, different diseases. So I'll be, I want to go into real depth and actually discuss what really blood flow is and yes, let people on what really, what is blood flow. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think a wonderful way for us to, to go through this interview is to dive into what's happening in our body, how blood flow travels through our body, what affects it, what we can do about it to improve our blood flow. And then we'll talk specifically about you know, how blood flow might affect our body with rheumatoid arthritis or autoimmune in general. And then we'll talk about some tips and you can give us some tips of ways to have better blood flow. But before we get into all that, I just want to give our audience your introduction because you have a very, very prestigious career and I don't want to overlook that. Let's get started with a little intro here. Uh, you were born in Seoul in Korea and your family immigrated to the United States when you're only nine years old. So you grew up in the United States. You graduated from Georgetown Medical School in Washington, D.C. and completed a residency in general surgery followed by a plastic and reconstructive residency at New York Presbyterian Weill Cornell Medical Center. And as a clinical professor of surgery at NYPH, you regularly teach plastic surgery residents and medical students. You volunteer on a medical missions team. And each year for the past decade, you've traveled to South America and Africa and serve over there. Your passion for healthy living and total body wellness has led you on a journey to teach and research and advise essentially the community and anyone who will listen. And uh, our brief chat prior to getting started here, boy, am I excited because you and I share the same exact passion, which is maximum health, minimum disease. So let's get into it. Well, you know what? This whole journey started for me. I would say about a decade ago, maybe little, little, bef- little after that. What happened is I, I treat after training, doing all these training, I'm a plastic surgeon. So what does a plastic surgeon have to do with any of this stuff? But as a plastic surgeon, I see a lot of my patients, they come to me mostly for elective surgery to make themselves look younger, better. So, but then even during my training and, and reconstructed part of plastic surgery involves involves really reconstructing someone after injury or after cancer surgery. 
And they, these, during the surgery, I realized that when patients have poor blood flow, meaning if they have, if they have chronic disease, that means like diabetes, high blood pressure, or heart disease, they end up not doing as well. The surgical, surgical outcome is not as good. Meaning that for what I do as a plastic surgeon is very dis- different than a thoracic or heart surgeon or other surgeon, because for us, what we do is try to repair the damaged area. And it usually involves what we call rotating flaps, moving tissues. It's called tissue transfer. So we'll get a tissue from nearby structure and move it. When we do that, we actually disconnect some of the blood vessels and rely on the remaining blood vessels to carry. So if patients have some diseases, it doesn't heal well. That, the tissue that we transfer, part of it dies. Or we, we even do what we call free tissue transfer, where we take different parts uh, from different parts of the body and try to fill in the hole. You know, as a long time ago, plastic surgeons, the, the prestigiousness of plastic surgeons was measured by how big a hole we can fill. That was, <laughs> at once upon a time, that was what plastic surgeons sort of mark was. How, what kind of great plastic surgeon you are depending on how big a hole you can fill. So for us, yes, our, our, our job is to take care of the defect. And in so doing, I realized that, that patients with chronic disease don't have good blood flow because the tissues don't heal. And we plastic surgeons, unbeknownst to many people, we live and die by blood flow, meaning that when we disconnect these uh, blood vessels, we're depending on few other blood vessels to carry the load. And you know what? We're always checking for blood flow with what we call capillary refill. We're touching it. We're doing to making sure that the blood is refilling. We measure the temperature. We do probes. We measure oxygen saturation to that little tissue that we transfer. So we're always concerned about blood flow. So, so as naturally as a plastic surgeon, it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And then I came upon sort of this and I said, maybe health, our health is completely dependent on blood flow. Just to describe what blood flow is, basically, our heart, it starts with our heart. The heart is the pump. So it's going to pump the blood. Blood comes through the heart. It gets oxygenated in the lungs. And then it gets sent out to the big, the big blood vessels called the aorta. And then that goes down into smaller artery, smaller artery, yes, smaller artery, to smallest arterial. And then it goes to finally to the capillaries. And capillaries is where all the action occurs because that's where the cells are going to receive oxygen and nutrients. So blood flow basically exists for the capillaries to pass off oxygen and nutrients to the cells. And if any of these things are interrupted, the cells will not get adequate amount of oxygen and nutrients. And that's going to lead to all the disease that we know today. And so blood flow to me is, is the most important thing. And I've Basically, when I look at the commonality of all these diseases, we talk about heart disease, you talk about diabetes, we talk about even, even things like Alzheimer's and even cancer. These are all diseases of the blood flow, ultimately. And I can go into very deep length about why blood flow is what determines these diseases. Yes, let's let's go there um, in just okay. a moment. Let's just remind our audience and myself what's in blood. What are we? What have we got inside blood? And you mentioned oxygen being probably the most important aspect of what's being transported in blood. But what else is in blood? So blood is made up of the color is the red color is determined by the red blood cells. The red blood cells are sort of this kind of 
discoid looking, uh, circular discoid looking kind of a tissue. And it's about eight microns in diameter. And this has all these hemoglobin molecules attached to it. All these hemoglobin, and those hemoglobin molecules are what oxygen binds to. So when it, when the red blood cell goes to the lung, the oxygen that we breathe goes and binds to the hemoglobin. So that's red blood cell obviously is the most important component of the, of the blood, but there's also white blood cells. These are the, mm-hmm. now we'll, these are components of the immune system. White cells are used to, as a defense mechanism, if there's bacteria, viruses, any kind of foreign material, or even toxins. So white cells are involved in the immune system. And then there's the plasma, which contains various hormones and all the stuff that travels in the blood. So that's pretty much the most important parts of the blood. So this is now all flowing, including nutrients, obviously nutrients. So basically, from the heart, it goes to the lung to pick up oxygen. And then from the GI system through the liver, it picks up nutrients. And then that gets all mixed in the blood, in the heart. It'll pump that blood to all the cells. Yes, great. Okay, thank you. Now, you mentioned earlier, you went over arteries. I think you mentioned veins, capillaries. So, so far we've learned that we've got all of these crucial components in the blood, oxygen being the most important. It needs, all of our cells need this oxygen. And we have the heart pumping the blood and then becoming oxygenated through the lungs and then being delivered through the rest of the body, eventually getting into the capillaries. Now, in short, in the near future, we're going to talk about um, how the capillaries can become damaged and broken, you've spoken about in your book. And that's yeah. fascinating because I think that is close to uh, some of the issues with, with joints that we experience with uh, you know, broken down capillaries and things. So we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but you talked about disease can impair blood flow. How can our blood flow become impaired? And is it because of disease or is the disease the outcome of impaired blood flow? Well, how, how can this impairment occur? Well, you know what, earlier on in my uh, sort of uh, research and writing my book, I thought really cholesterol was the devil. You know, we hear that cholesterol blocks the blood vessels, right? So I think most people are familiar with that high cholesterol diet or cholesterol in the blood or if the cholesterol is elevated, then it's going to affect, you're going to end up with these plaques and the plaques can, of course, block the blood vessels. And when you block the blood vessels, you're going to cut off the oxygen, right? So I thought it was all about cholesterol. So I chased that cholesterol for a while. <laughs> Personally, I was on a, a vegan diet and I thought that you could not eat anything that contained cholesterol. And I realized that that was not right. That was not right. It's not the cholesterol. Cholesterol is a vital substance that's made by by liver, about 1,000 milligrams every day. And it is very important because what does cholesterol do? Well, cholesterol, from cholesterol, we make vitamin D. We make all the hormones, all these important hormones like sex hormones, like testosterone, progesterone, progesterone. And it even makes cortisol, which we need in times of stress. And so, and I already talked about vitamin D. So these are these are absolutely necessary substance that we need for our body. So you can't just cut off cholesterol. Cholesterol is very important. So cholesterol is not an evil substance that many people have dubbed it. But mm-hmm. then they say, oh, there's bad cholesterol and there's good cholesterol, right? And they said bad cholesterols are what deposits in the blood vessels and they cause problems. But these LDL cholesterol, which are considered to be bad cholesterol, they don't actually cause 
these problems because LDL is how our body carries cholesterol. So it, our liver makes LDL, it carries to our cells and our cells use the cholesterol. But by the way, LDL is called low density lipoprotein. It's LDL, low density lipoprotein. They have both triglyceride, they have other fatty acids, phospholipids, and cholesterol. All these are used by our cells and it's absolutely mm-hmm. necessary. But the plaques, so what does what causes plaques? And, and you know, because plaque is very important because this is what ends up causing problems with heart disease, with strokes, with so many, so many other problems, right? So plaque is what's what's a big issue. And the plaque is not necessarily caused by cholesterol, but plaque is actually caused by lack of oxygen to the blood mm-hmm. vessel wall. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Plaque is caused by lack of blood flow because you see our blood vessels, although it carries our, see, this is a hard concept. Our okay. blood vessel itself carries the blood, right? Inside. Yes. But the blood vessel is made up of wall. It's got a covering, right? And it's, it's, it's a tube. It's basically, our blood vessels are tubes and it's a, there's a blood vessel wall in this tube. So, and there's a layer and there's three layers called the intima, media, and the adventitia. So there's three, there's a thickness to the blood vessel wall and the blood vessel wall itself doesn't get enough oxygen. When it doesn't get enough oxygen, then that causes the blood vessels to have problems. And when it has problems, that progresses to plaques because it's trying to heal itself. It's trying to heal. It's not getting enough oxygen. So even the blood vessel wall itself, blood vessels itself, the problem is lack of oxygen and nutrients to the blood vessel. It's, it's, it, this is really, it's, 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 it's really fascinating. So, and, and so blood, blood vessel wall, I felt that blood vessel wall is even hypoxic. I want to use the word hypoxia. Hypoxia is low in oxygen or lack of oxygen, right? Hypoxia. So blood vessel wall gets hypoxic and that leads to plaques. And as you know, plaques leads to heart disease, strokes, and so many other diseases in our body, including high blood pressure, right? All these are manifestation of a, of a, of a plaque. And plaque, again, is not, not due to necessarily elevated cholesterol. And you were talking about veins before. Well, arteries are blood vessels that are carrying blood to the tissues. Veins are the blood vessels that carry blood from the tissues back to the heart. So that's the vein. And so arteries are much thicker than the veins. And interestingly enough, arteries only develop plaques. Certain arteries only develop plaques. Veins will never develop plaques. Veins will never develop plaques. It's just very interesting. Veins are, by the way, one eight to one tenth thick as artery. It's much thinner than artery than an artery, and it'll never develop a plaque. Arteries do. Right. So, and is that because of the order in which the blood moves through the body? Yeah, no, it's because, the th- because as I said, the artery is thicker, artery yeah. is thicker, and the walls can become hypoxic, yeah. lack of oxygen. Mm-hmm. It, it all has to do with oxygen. Mm-hmm. So the mm-hmm. arteries are much more susceptible to developing oxygen shortage. The veins don't have that. So... All the diseases that we talk about will have this. Okay. So the begging question is, how can the body become so deficient in oxygen that even the arteries themselves are oxygen deficient? Well, that's, yeah, it's a, and it's, that's an interesting and a great question. And I think this has been debated about what, what, what causes a problem? What, what really causes problem? 
And it basically, it comes to down to chronic inflammation. And it's a big word. And I think there's been a lot of things about chronic inflammation. People talk about it. Chronic inflammation is, and when I ask, honestly, when I ask some of my friends, what is chronic inflammation? Even doctors, they don't even, they can't, they say, well, it's a little redness. It's the, they, they, they can't even really, they can't really dis- describe it. You know, they, they have a hard time pinpointing what exactly what chronic inflammation is, you know, but chronic inflammation is simply an immune response. That's all it is. Chronic inflammation is just an immune. So inflammation itself is a, a fancy way of saying immune response. So when, why do we have immune response? When there's injury. So it's, first of all, there has to be a damage and injury. When there's a damage or injury, then inflammation ensues after that. Because why? When there's a damage to our part of our body, the only way our body can fix that damage, guess what? Is inflammation. It's through immune response. So let's say a bacteria enters your body. Mm -hmm. The only way our body can take care of the bacteria is through immune system. It neutralizes it. And then the damage that the bacteria does, does to our body, it heals it by inflammation. Inflammation means it brings in all these cells that's going to repair that process. And then when when that repair finishes, everything leaves. Problem with chronic inflammation that that's causing all these problems is that chronic inflammation occurs because our body is getting constantly damaged. It's getting damaged every day. And why does it get damaged every day? Well, you know, a lot of the bad food, pollutants, I mean, things that happening in our body, we're doing it to our body over and over and over again. And many of us don't even realize it, right? When you're eating processed food, you don't realize that that's causing problems, but that processed food enters your body through the GI system, and then it ends up, it ends up, uh, it ends up. You know, your your body has to respond to that because this yeah. is now bad food and toxins that enter. So it tries to neutralize that. So it, it turns on the immune response. Well, that immune response will stop soon as you stop eating that. But do people yeah. really stop eating? You know, <laughs> processed food. They'll say one day they eat it, and they say next day, oh, okay, I'm not going to eat this for the rest of my life. Yeah. If we decide to do that, that's where, as you see, that's where things will start improving, right? Chronic inflammation is so important. I think we have to really understand what chronic inflammation is. Actually, uh, contrary to, again, what people think, chronic inflammation is an important process. Again, you know that we blame chronic inflammation for being bad, but chronic inflammation is absolutely necessary because it's necessary to take care of the injury. So if there's injury, we have to stop the injury. But once the injury occurs, we need an immune response to that injury. It's just that when the injury keeps happening, that mm. chronic inflammation keeps turning on, then it becomes bad. Mm. Then it becomes mm. bad because it's a constant it, immune system is constantly turned on. When that immune system is constantly turned on, then the damage turns on. And where does the damage occur? With chronic inflammation, guess where the damage is? It's in the capillaries. In the very smallest of the blood vessels, the capillary mm-hmm. gets destroyed. And I've looked at a number of uh, research articles on this, capillary density studies, and mic- mic- it's called microcirculation and tissue perfusion. These are all uh, measuring how much oxygen and nutrients are getting to the cells. When they look at those smallest vessels, when you have chronic inflammation, they're completely damaged. They're plugged up, they're damaged, they're destroyed, and they disappear. They shut down. That's what happens with chronic inflammation. So when you think of chronic inflammation, you got to think in your head, you got to equate that. And I equate it as 
cells aren't getting oxygen and nutrients. Yeah. That's it. That's how you have to think. Yeah, yeah. No, it's absolutely fascinating. And I just wanted to let you know, as you probably don't know this, but with rheumatoid arthritis, um, probably 19 out of 20 people, if they don't eat for three, four, five days, all of the joint pain disappears. And this totally reaffirms what you've just said. So this is something that even many rheumatologists don't know, is that when you actually stop consuming food, the inflammation disappears. And so what you're saying about this constant abuse to the body is completely accurate. And so you've described how where you know the body reacts to, say, a bacteria entering the blood. And I think that you know, all these pollutants are coming in through maybe gut permeability through our digestive system. And uh, we've got high fat foods, processed foods, creating dysbiosis and liver problems, which is something you touched upon in your book. And so we've got all this going on. And then you talked about how this chronic inflammation just doesn't stop because the body's consuming these foods all the time. And when we talk about exercise and some other tips that you've got for us shortly, we can learn about what we can try and do to offset this and also with our diet and so forth. Yeah. So, well, there, you know, there are so many things that we can do, obviously, <laughs> but just to, just to finish off, uh, I mean, just to reiterate with the rheumatoid arthritis, mm. basically, basically, I think most people kind of know that rheumatoid arthritis is some sort of a disease to the joint, right? I think lay people would understand it. People mm. with rheumatoid arthritis obviously suffer from joint, pain, joint disease, meaning they have pain, chronic pain, and they have problems where it's literally disabling, right? They can't yes. turn or they can't grab or they can't do exercise. They can't run, they can't walk, right? And basically when, when you look at the joints of these rheumatoid arthritis, you can see that the joints are hypoxic. And we know that there's hypoxia there. Why do we know that? We even know there's a special protein called hypoxia-inducible factor. It's a fact, it's, 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 this is a fascinating subject of its own, hypoxia-inducible factor. Our body triggers it and activates it when, it, when, when the cells are hypoxic, meaning that if there's low in oxygen, we automatically activate this thing called hypoxia-inducible factor. And hypoxia-inducible factor, we know in in rheumatoid arthritis is way elevated, way wow. elevated. In wow, that's, it, that's fascinating. Is way, way elevated. And what's interesting is in 2019, the Nobel Prize for Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology went to a group that discovered hypoxia-inducible factor. Wow. Which, that's, is, which is pretty wild, you know? And I've been working on this book and I published this book in 2018. Coincidentally, I mean, this is what I study, you know, the oxygen to the cells. And yeah. this is basically saying, coming, confirming what I, you know, believe that the oxygen really to the cells is everything. And, and the oxygen gets there through blood flow, right? And this hypoxia-inducible factor is way elevated. So you know what happens to rheumatoid arthritis when the hypoxia-inducible factor is elevated? What our body does is it tries to compensate, right? It has to, because there is now low oxygen the cells are going to die. There's low oxygen, low nutrients, blood flow is not so good. So this hypoxia-inducible factor, when there's low oxygen, gets triggered and it starts making, it starts doing a couple of things. It starts making energy without using oxygen. It's called glycolysis. So it's pretty fascinating. It makes energy and it makes sense because if we, we, in order for our body, to, our cells to make energy in a, in a very efficient way, we need oxygen. It's called respiration. It does in the mitochondria. We absolutely need oxygen. 
if we don't have oxygen, then the cells will switch off, switch off to making energy in the cytoplasm of the cells outside of the mitochondria, and it makes energy without oxygen. That's, that's incredible. All, and it, all, the byproduct, however, is lactic acid, lactic oh. acid, and you could get lactic mm-hmm. acid acidosis. Mm-hmm. The other thing that it does, which is fascinating, and you see in the rheumatoid joints is in our body starts making new blood vessels. It's called angiogenesis. So in rheumatoid joints, you'll see all these new blood vessels that are forming. Because why? The joint is hypoxic. There's lack of oxygen. And lack of oxygen is going to destroy the joint. And it's destroying the cartilage. And it's destroyed the bones. So our body's saying, oh, it's, it's, it's being destroyed. So we need more oxygen in here. We need more blood flow. The way we can do it is to make new blood vessels. However, the only downside of these new blood vessels that are formed in rheumatoid joints is that it's formed under hypoxia and those blood vessels are not any good. They don't function properly. That's the, that's the bad thing about this. Those joint, the, the, the blood vessels are not good. The whole idea of making new blood vessels seems like it's a great way to get more blood flow in there. However, the blood vessels that are formed under that kind of situation, it's our body's innate mechanism to do that in order to compensate for this lack of oxygen. However, the new blood vessels that are made in rheumatoid joints, these blood vessels are not good. And, and there's angiogenesis. So what they're, what they're thinking is, see, immediately the medical community thinks, okay, so if these blood vessels are no good, why don't we just shut them off? Why don't we just make a medicine, make a medication that's going to shut off this angiogenesis and it's called anti-angiogenic medication, anti-angiogenic medicine. So they're just given artificially and you shut off the medication shut off those blood vessels from forming. The problem is, though, it ends up affecting the rest of our body and it doesn't help the joint. The joint doesn't get any more blood flow because of this, necessarily. What the joints need, what, are, what the rheumatoid joints need is oxygen. Mm. Oxygen. Mm. Mm. So there, there are, to me, there are right now, as we know, and we'll discuss this, there are a number of good ways to get oxygen into it. And again, again, I think most in the medical community don't really emphasize this part, right? This can part. we? Can I hold you there? I, it's like a dam. I, we want to break that dam and go into all of that information, and that's going to be fantastic. But I just want to, just for completeness, I just want to ask you an interesting question here: the hypoxia, hypoxia inducible factor, and and this is just your opinion. Do you feel that a person's severity to rheumatoid arthritis? could be measured by that factor without seeing the patient, you could tell whether or not that person is going to be terribly symptomatic or, or only low symptoms. And do you think that in the future, it may even be one of the quantitative measurable markers like C-reactive protein to monitor a patient's progress? Absolutely. Absolutely. A hypoxia inducible factor is something that we can measure. Yes. And yes, we've found that in other diseases, and there even could be some paper even that exists out there about this because hypoxia right. inducible factor itself was discovered in 1994. So that was 26 years ago. Yeah. And they've yep. been doing a lot of work with this because this right. is really, I believe that this hypoxia inducible factor is earth shattering discovery really. Only thing is its application. I believe there's, they've been slow on its application because they're using, I believe they're using sort of old theory and old models. They need to use new models. Hypoxia inducible factor, I believe, if we use this properly, yes, in, in rheumatoid joints or anybody, anybody with any diseases, I believe if we measure hypoxia inducible factor, 
and see that it's way elevated, that the disease severity is higher. By the way, when you actually introduce oxygen to them, guess what happens to hypoxia-inducible factor? It starts going down on its own. So yes, when obviously if the hypoxia-inducible factor goes down, then you're going to, that means that the joint is getting more, that tissue is getting more oxygen. And yes, repair is repair and, and healing is occurring. Yes, absolutely. So I believe hypoxia induced, and they, I think, I believe they're already doing to some degree trying to measure hypoxia inducible factor and following disease severity based on hypoxia inducible. And this actually yeah. is also for cancers as well. It's funny. Mm. This is for every, just about every disease. Yeah. If you look mm. at it, hypoxia inducible factor is elevated in cancer in, in, in patients with AMD, it's called age-related macular degeneration, diabetic retinopathy. There's so many diseases mm-hmm. because hypoxia-inducible factor, basically all it is, is it's a sort of knee-jerk response by our body. When the oxygen is low in our cells, it's activated automatically. It's mm-hmm. activated automatically. It has to because it's activated because it's trying to adjust and adapt our cells to live with lower levels of oxygen because the consequence is otherwise it'll die, right? Mm-hmm. There's death. Mm-hmm. Or it can live with low oxygen. Yeah. And our, I think our cells choose to live with lower oxygen, right? And it has to adapt. It has to adapt. It has to adapt in how it makes its energy. And it also has to adapt in many, many other ways. And really, hypoxia-inducible factor, what's fascinating is it actually goes, hypoxia-inducible factor, when it's activated, it attaches to the DNA. It attaches to the DNA. It goes right to the DNA, attaches it, shuts off part of the DNA, and turns on different parts of DNA. That's just what's fascinating. It wow. is incredibly fascinating. So it literally, it, it has what we call epigenetic effect. Epigenetic effect. And I don't know if you're familiar with epigenetics, mm-hmm. you know, genetic. Literally, the environment is actually shaping way the DNA. So I am, mm-hmm. total, I am a total believer that our envi- through environment, we could actually change the way our DNA behaves. We could actually modulate the behavior of our DNA. We thought that DNA, you're born with this set of DNA that you're stuck with for the rest of your life. I believe that literally we can modify the way DNA because we could shut on and off the DNA without changing, without causing a mutation, meaning changing the DNA, right? We're just simply turning off different parts of DNA and turning on different parts of DNA. And we can do that. And we know it occurs. And this is what hypoxia-inducible factor. So this HIF, for short, hypoxia-inducible factor, yeah. is called a transcription factor. Transcription. And in the, to just go back to rheumatoid patients, rheumatoid patients have way elevated mm. hypoxia-inducible factor. And I bet you, like you said, if you want to follow uh, rheumatoid patients, as they're healing, what, you know, yeah. what they're on a certain diet or they're on an ex- whatever they're doing, right? Whatever yeah. they do to try to get more, when they get more oxygen, I bet you it's clear the hypoxia inducible factor is going to go down. Okay. Now, I'm just, uh, you know, buzzing because I've never come across this before you. And so um, is this something that our audience can go and ask their general practitioner for a blood test? No. You know what? This is a, this is an early phase of this right now. Yes, yep. no. They can right now. They can right now. And honestly, right now, general practitioners are a little behind in this right now because I think they're still pretty much for they have a garden sort of variety treatment for rheumatoid arthritis, right? They right, include right. 
And it's basically, it's all about modulating the immune system, right? That's what, right. That's what the medical community is using right now, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. methotrexate or any other immunosuppressants or some sort, right? Whether it's mm-hmm. anti-inflammatory, it's all about sort of changing, treating the sort of the symptoms, right? So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think they're ready for this right now, but I think this is coming on the horizon. And that's the good news, I think, for a lot of the patients. Yeah. This is coming right here. And I believe that this kind of stuff right here, this can really change really the course of the disease, not only in diagnosis, treatment, but really curing, I think even curing patients. Mm, yeah, it's, it's really, really interesting. So before we get into, and this will be the last thing, I know our audience is like, come on, Clint, just tell him what we need to do about this stuff. And I promise you, just give me one more question here. The question is, around the capillaries and or capillaries sorry about the pronunciation there i've just always learned it as capillaries maybe it's an australian thing or maybe i've mislearned it so with with that part of the blood delivery in your book you spoke about how the capillaries are only the same diameter as a red blood cell that blew my mind so so it means that you say that the, you explain how, therefore, the blood flow through the capillaries is very slow to be able to both deliver oxygen, but also withdraw some of the toxins and clean the area in which it's passing. So it's, 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 it's fascinating, this, the amount of capillaries that we have in our body, because that's really all these blood vessels exist for the capillaries, basically. This is where all the action is occurring, right? That's, I call this the most important swap system in our body, right? It's the most important swap. We have just about almost unlimited amounts of capillaries because the blood vessels essentially at the end diverges out into millions and millions of capillaries to reach every single cell in our body. And then these capillaries, they're so tiny that literally one red blood cell, which is about eight microns wide in diameter, eight microns. So capillaries are just about that. And sometimes it's even a little tight, smaller than that. The red blood cell literally has to shape it, reshape itself to squeeze through. And it's designed specifically that way because the blood flow right there, right there through that, it's slower pace and it's, it's allowing the exchange occurring. That's where then the hemoglobin from the red cells can actually exchange through the capillary wall, which is very thin endothelium, a very thin lining through the cells, it could pass off its oxygen and then also the nutrients from the bloodstream. And then of course, from the cells, the carbon dioxide will come into the capillaries as well as some of the waste products. So it's a great swap system. That's what occurs. And it's very, it's a very slow right there, very slow movement right there. All the Mm. other parts is fast and then it slows down in the capillaries. And then, of course, it shunts right back in a speedy fashion, you know? So, yes, capillaries are the most important system. And this is where, as I just want to reiterate again, this is where inflammation really affects. These capillaries are easily destroyed. They, they're very thin wall and the capillaries are very sensitive. So it's easily damaged. It's easily damaged. So even high blood pressure, for instance, if you have high blood pressure, that stays for a while, capillaries are dist- uh, shuts down. Capillaries wow. can't withstand that higher pressure. So people with high blood pressure, this is one of the big problems. Capillaries literally shut down. So they end up having oxygen problem to their cells as well. People with high blood pressure. That's why high blood pressure must be treated in all patients. And you know, so many people have high blood pressure that's untreated. 
And so many people, even age of starting age of 50, 60, so many percentage of the population have high blood pressure. So those mm. capillaries, we must preserve the capillaries and capillaries. Mm. So we, we need to protect it and we need to really optimize it. And that is stopping inflammation. Yes, right. I see. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. How do we stop this inflammation? You and I have spoken about diet before, and uh, there's so much opportunity and stuff we haven't talked about yet. You've got many, many tips in your book on how we can improve our blood flow. And um, I'm happy for you to just give us uh, some of those in whatever importance you believe to be the the hierarchy. Um, If I may take a guess, it would appear to me that... uh, that, that exercise is going to be quite near the top of that list. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, as, as you found out yourself in your journey, a diet is very important. You know, diet is medicine, right? Mm-hmm. Food is medicine. Mm-hmm. And again, I think uh, many of the doctors and medical practitioners sort of don't take this as seriously. And maybe some of them are coming around to this, but we know that food is medicine. I mean, you, and, and out of that medicine, there's a lot of bad food out there, as we know, a lot of food that are inflammatory foods. So when we talk about uh, like food in general, as you've been on, it's a, what we call sort of quote unquote, anti-inflammatory food, right? And these are unprocessed, not unprocessed food that are whole food diet, basically food that we get from earth right into our mouth and into our stomach, right? Unprocessed, untouched by man, right? Or maybe lightly change, but we don't want we don't want to add all kinds of chemicals and you know all these processed food. Honestly, it's not even food; it's chemical. So we're actually consuming chemicals, and they're highly inflammatory. As soon as they enter our bloodstream, and not only for people with rheumatoid arthritis, but every patient out there, every person out there, when they consume this kind of diet, it's going to cause inflammation. And inflammation manifests itself maybe not in joints in non-rheumatoid patients, but it's going to manifest itself in their blood vessels. It's going to manifest in the vision, in the brain, and in their heart, every part of the body. So they're going to end up with diseases. They're going to end up with diseases because of inflammatory food. And again, it's one thing if we eat inflammatory food one day and then say, okay, that was it. Maybe I'll cleanse myself and not eat this for the rest of the year. We don't do that though. We continue to consume the same inflammatory food day in, day out. And the result is basically we stay in an inflammatory state. And so, yes, food, diet is number one thing. Number mm-hmm. one thing. And the other thing that I think also is a very big trigger for rheumatoid patient is smoking. Smoking is a major no-no. And I believe smoking is probably one of the worst things that you can do for yourself voluntarily. Sometimes food, we're eating it, we don't even know that it's damaging us. But we clearly, I think most of us understand that smoking is clearly not good for us. It robs our every cells in our body of oxygen. It robs every cells, and it does it in a number of different ways. And I talk about it in my book. Nicotine causes vasoconstriction, meaning it tightens the blood vessel mm-hmm. so the blood doesn't flow properly. Carbon monoxide that's in the smoke itself, carbon monoxide will bind to our hemoglobin and lower the oxygen in our bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And then there are 7,000 chemicals that are in each cigarette, and which of wow. 70 of them are known to be carcinogens. Wow. 70 yeah. are known to cause clearly cancer. So 7,000 chemicals. And these things are massive inflammatory agents. And we know mm-hmm. that in medicine, when I was training in surgery 
in my specialty in surgery and plastic surgery, we know that, you know what, when patients have, many of these patients who are smokers have heart disease, yeah, yeah. strokes, they end up with limb amputation, they have kidney disease, they have all, and they have cancer everywhere in their body. Because smoking, again, people think smoking only affects the lungs. No, smoking affects the blood vessels. It affects the blood flow. Smoking really affects the blood flow. And for any patients who suffer from rheumatoid, smoking is going to rob their joints of that much. They're they're already suffering from low oxygen in their joints. Smoking is going to even lower that. And it's going to cause even more inflammation. So Mm -hmm. I, I... I, when I see people smoke, I kind of cringe because, and, and it's not even smokers, it's secondhand smoking. So if your father, your brother, your wife, whoever smokes around you, it's going to affect you as well. So it's not even smoker themselves. It's even secondhand smoke. So I really, this is a, this is something that I know that smokers have difficult time because they're, they have certain addiction or habits and it is very difficult to break. I know in certain cases, but it's better not to start this, uh, this, this smoking habit to begin with, right? That's the best. Absolutely. It destroys every blood vessel. Just remember, it's not the lungs. People say, oh, you know what? No, yeah. it's the blood vessels that they're destroying, circulatory system. And that leads to just about every disease known to man. And especially it destroys the blood vessels and our cells will be deprived of oxygen and it ends up leading to all kinds of cancer. Just about increases risk for every cancer that we know mm-hmm. of. So, mm. so diet, good diet, smoking, not smoking, and of course, uh, stress. And we, again, this is a sort of a hidden, I think, hidden thing. And, and you touched on this, you know, stress causes leaky, leaky gut syndrome and problems with our gut, as you know, you know, and obviously we know that it's going to affect our GI system and mm-hmm. it's going to cause depletion of our good, good bacteria, you know, and it's going to change the microbiome of our gut. So we know that that's, a, that's going to be an issue. Stress does that. And people, again, don't really give stress enough credit. And pretty much, I think all of us have stress, one yeah. form or another, right? One form. So we, we navigate the society and it's difficult to live without stress, you know? And we, I myself living in New York area, there's a lot of stress due to many different things, right? Whether it's financial, marital, there's everything going around your relationships. So there's a lot of stress, but so I don't think we could eliminate stress. Instead, I think what we can do is to, is to try to minimize it doing, I think through yoga, meditation, prayer. I think these are great strategy in trying to minimize the stress that we have, you know? And I, and I think this, I think this is really more important than people think and stress Mm -hmm. Clearly, stress, you know, that when we have stress, it increases cortisol and blood sugar in our body. People who are stressed, the blood sugar goes up, you know, because stress, remember, is an old mechanism. It's a fight or flight response. The stress mechanism, it's a fight or flight response, meaning that stress is actually good. You know, in our cavemen, sort of our ancestor cavemen, they use stress to their advantage. You know, when they were attacked by a, a predator, they had the stress and Everything went up, including the blood pressure went up, the blood, they did all this and the, and the sugar went up, you know, cortisol levels went up so they could deal with that immediate, right? They're trying to fight mm-hmm. off this animal and it was good. However, yes. that stress, by the way, that the arcade men ancestor dealt with, stress that we have 
may not be physical stress necessarily. It's a mental stress, but our body processes exactly the same way. Same way. So it affects the blood flow. Stress ends up actually reducing oxygen to our cells because it affects the blood vessels and it destroys our blood vessels. So it's important, I think, to try to minimize or deal with stress, whether you, you know, and and again, there are different ways. And lastly, I think one of the best ways, the way I deal with stress is exercise. Yeah. And it's sort of like mimicking. And I say in my book, it's sort of like exercise sort of tricks. It's like when you exercise, it's like running away from stress, you know, running away from that danger. So it's kind of, I feel like exercise does two things, you know, it literally during exercise, your blood vessels open up, your blood, your body pumps more blood flow and oxygen clearly gets to your cells much better. We end up lowering the blood sugar in our body. When you exercise, the sugar levels go down. That's clear. It's one of the best way to control sugar, by the way, exercise. So the sugar is again, you know, high sugar is what can cause problems with blood flow excessive sugar. And, you know, in our, we have in our society way too much sugar consumption, everything's sugar. So having a high sugar diet is a, is a major, major problem with the blood flow. And so exercise can actually counteract a lot of that. It even lowers the sugar. It even uh, exercise opens up the blood vessels and actually opens up the capillaries. It, it actually opens up the capillaries and uh, it actually induces angiogenesis increases blood vessels in our body. So we end up even getting more blood flow, more blood vessels. So exercise is good in so many good, so many ways, you know? And on top of that, exercise obviously makes you feel better, right? Through those, yeah. those I, mean, they, I mean, you could argue about this, whether it really causes, you know, mood elevation through this sort of neurotransmitters in your brain. But I mean, there's both argument, but any, any which way you look at it, you get increased blood flow to your brain. You know that exercise increases blood flow to your brain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's brilliant. So we, we want to get our diet right. We want to make sure we don't smoke, which fortunately most of our audience here won't be smoking because they've been, you know, they've, they've got a uh, higher level of consciousness. Um, we've, we've got to reduce our stress, which plays such a massive role and it's underappreciated that you've pointed out leads to leaky gut and all sorts of uh, reduction in uh, uh, blood flow, and then exercise we want to do to to open up those capillaries and and have all the other benefits you say. I like to say that exercise you know, gives you stress reduction for free because you know you're exercising. And I read a book by a guy who talks about ultra marathon running, and he says, "You show me one person that's stressed when they're ten kilometers into an ultra marathon." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just not possible, right? So I love those four big sort of headline sort of areas. And I know in your book, you go into a lot more detail as to why. And the book is fascinating as to how each one of these aspects plays such a, such a crucial role in, uh, in restoring our, our blood flow. Let's finish up um, with just some sort of, uh, you know, these might not be sort of short answers, but just I just want to get your opinion on some of these concepts that I've had in my mind for many, many years that I would like you to sort of refine or correct or, or give me a tick and see whether or not I'm on the right, right path here. Um, one of them is that with joints, when you create a tourniquet effect and cut off the blood flow to a joint, for, by way of example, I've always found that I, I have recovered from some creeping or developing inflammation in my fingers by hanging from an overhead bar. 
And by doing this, I guess I've had to develop a really good grip strength to be able to hold my body weight. And if I hold longer and longer periods, I notice that my joints in my fingers start to let go of any sort of creeping or trying to develop inflammation. And in yoga classes, uh, often teachers will say that if we sit on our knees in a Japanese style, where our, our, our heels are touching our buttocks, if, if we're lucky enough to be able to do it, um, that the tourniquet effect again applies through the knees where there is a whitening or a, you know, a, a sort of a lack of blood flow to the knees. And then when we relax and lie down, then quickly we get a fresh flow of blood through, in mm-hmm. this case, the knee joint. And so this long setup is just to say, do you feel that when we cut off blood flow by through our fingers, by hanging or by sitting down, and then we open up that joint and allow a complete, you know, relaxation through the joint. Does there, is there a flushing effect of joint of blood flow? I bet you there is. I bet you there are. I mean, it's called the reflow phenomenon. You know, when you apply a tourniquet, for instance, and then you let go, then you're literally opening up and the, and the blood vessels end up vasodilating. Yes. So there is, I mean, when you come in from the cold, for instance, you know, your blood vessels will vasodilate and you get increased blood flow. And some people believe that going from hot water to cold water, yeah. sort of that, that really affects the blood flow. Yes, I believe that there is such a thing as reflow phenomena where literally you're going from cutting off the blood flow to letting it go and then you got a rush of blood flow. Yes, I, you know, there is some merit for that. Okay, Absolutely. wonderful. My next question, we talked about diet. One of the specifics that I've observed personally and with virtually everyone that I work closely with inside my support platform, oils, particularly heated oils, oils that have been used in restaurant cooking and stuff, cause a lot of inflammation in the body. Mm-hmm. One theory I have around that, as well as oxidative stress, uh, one theory that is relevant to you, do you think that some of the fat from the diet is getting into the blood and causing the blood to become for want of a better word, more sluggish or slower. And this can slow down the oxygen delivery. You know, I'm not sure about that. Honestly, I'm not sure about that. But I do believe that it can lead to inflammation. Sure. Certain types of oil, yes, can lead to more exaggerated chronic inflammation. And I believe, obviously, chronic inflammation is going to cut off the blood flow. So absolutely. I think, you know, so that's, I think it depends on the oil. I think uh, that's why there's certain, I mean, when you talk about, you know, omega-3, different types of oil out yeah. there right, that yeah. contain. So I think there is some merit again to that. So I think we have to be careful about, you know, exactly what we eat. We can't just eat everything we want, right? Yes. Okay. Thank you. And then what about if we have cold extremities, you know, the lay understanding of this is that you've got bad circulation because your feet are cold and your hands are cold in winter. What's really going on there? And is that really actually a health problem? Is that a lack of blood flow or is it something else? You know, no, (laughs) no, I have cold extremities myself here and there. It's just that, yes, what happens is we're trying to, uh, when it's cold outside, what we're trying to do is, or in a cooler room, especially if you're thinner, we're trying to preserve the heat to our core. So we want to maintain a central core temperature. So we do that at the cost of our peripheral, te- peripheral circulation. So yes, just because you have, uh, you have a cold hand and feet, fingers and uh, feet, does not indicate that you have poor circulation. However, if you have bluish 
finger, you have bluish finger where it's numb and you have a certain, that could be a poor circulation. Yes. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily cold though. Cold is because I think of many of us are cold intolerant. And especially as you get older, you become cold intolerant. And that doesn't necessarily uh, reflect the poor circulation. Right, right. Okay, great. And finally, you know, what I do want to talk about is one thing I do want to talk about is what's in the future, sort of. Yes, please. As I say, to me, I'm on oxygen. I think oxygen is, is one of the most important thing. We evolved on oxygen, and I think oxygen is absolutely necessary for us. Therefore, you know, to talk about just getting how to get more oxygen, all these things are that we talked about are hard things, you know, changing your diet, exercising, right? Stress reduction. All these things are not something that you can do overnight. And it's very difficult for many people to do, right? So how else can we do it? I think we can, there could be on the horizon right now. So some people even ask me, can I try hyperbaric oxygen therapy? Yes, please. Inhaling oxygen, right? Is yes, that going to help? Is that going to help? Or can I go and just inhale oxygen and get an oxygen tank and do that? Well, the problem with that is while it may help a little bit to the tissues that are suffering from lack of oxygen, it's actually hurting other parts of the body, especially like a hyperbaric oxygen. For those people who don't understand what hyperbaric oxygen is, they're infusing 100% oxygen in a high pressure environment. So essentially forcing oxygen into your body. While that may help with somebody who has like a wound that's in the leg, who's a smoker or a diabetic who has a wound, you obviously get more oxygen to those areas. However, it's at a cost. You're actually damaging the, the airway and all the other tissues because they're getting way too much oxygen. There is such, we talk about hypoxia, but there's a, such a thing as hyperoxic injury, too much oxygen, and that damages cells as well. So it's not such an easy answer just to say, let's infuse us with with or inhale high oxygen and that's going to help us. And these oxygen bar called oxygen bar where people can go and literally inhale oxygen. Those were kind of fads back in the, I think the eighties and so forth. So that's not really a remedy for this. However, what is on the horizon is what we call oxygen microbubbles. This is to me, what's going to be the wave of the future in some way, oxygen microbubbles. It's a way of delivering oxygen to your s- tissues bypassing this, this method, which means that what they're doing is in the lab, and they're doing this right now, they're actually making these microbubbles that are almost the size, just smaller than the red blood cell. They're smaller than the red blood cell. They may be quarter the size of the red blood cells, half the quarter size of the red blood cell. They're li- lined with like this lipid layer and they infuse oxygen inside. And they bubble this up and they actually make these little bubbles and they inject it into your body. And these can safely travel in your bloodstream without causing oxygen injury. So it's traveling like it's, it's sort of disguised and hidden. And it travels to all the cells. If you don't use it up, if you don't do anything, those, it just gets, it disappears. It disappears. Our body washes it out. However, if you point an ultrasound device at it, you could burst these bubbles. So by bursting these bubbles, it releases the oxygen to those areas that are lacking. So I believe that this to me, is going to be a solution, part of the solution for many people, for even for patients with rheumatoid arthritis. I'm thinking about this, and I was thinking about this, literally injecting this into our bloodstream, and it's going to go to the joints. Mm-hmm. By releasing these oxygen microbubbles, we're actually delivering the oxygen. And what the studies have found, real scientific studies have found is, it's not so much that oxygen is, more oxygen is getting there. 
it's just that what when you introduce oxygen to those areas that have low oxygen, the blood vessels get fixed. Mm. The blood vessel that's been damaged now becomes normal. Mm. Then our body can use our circulatory system and blood flow to deliver oxygen to that area. Mm. So uh, do you follow me? So we're actually Absolutely. fixing the yeah. damaged blood vessels that the mm. like rheumatoid arthritics have damaged blood vessels yeah. in the joints, clearly damaged blood vessels. If you could fix those damaged blood vessels, then the blood flow will carry oxygen and you're going to end up repairing and reversing that rheumatoid joint. I believe that this is the way, this is sort of the future. Just for Mm. your audience, I think they could read about this if they Mm. Google oxygen microbubble, but they could read about this, but I think this is coming in the future. Yeah, that is awesome. What a positive way to wrap up, you know. I really have gotten so much out of this. Our time has flown. I appreciate it. We've gone a little over what we agreed. And uh, it's because I've just been uh, uh, so engaged and so interested. Um, what a fascinating book you've put together. And thank you for sharing some of this information with us on this podcast. I would love to uh, invite you into uh, have you come back at a later date, perhaps as part of a summit we might do or something like that, if you'd be interested, because Absolutely. I, I just love to do that. Thank you. I think what you're doing is absolutely fantastic. I encourage everyone to go and buy Let It Flow by Dr. Kwan. It's on Amazon. The content, if you like what we've talked about, then you will love what's in the book. It just goes into more detail. Dr. Kwan's written it in a way that's easy to understand, even for us without medical backgrounds. Um, But having said that, he also has a huge reference collection at the end of the book. So if you want to cross-reference or go and research further uh, some of the things that he has mentioned, you can go and find the scientific studies on PubMed and see them for yourself. And and, uh, it's just a fabulous mix between medical science, uh, his own personal observations and research and application and what you can do about it. So Dr. Quan, thank you so much. I'm just so pumped. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for listening to Rheumatoid Solutions. If you'd like to get more help to live an easier, healthier, and happier life, visit rheumatoidsolutions.com.